It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lutie. It's, uh, this is the second part because I'm doing a, a series on Mondays and on Wednesdays of what's called the Glossary of the Gospel. <clears throat> and Monday, which was sort of our grand opening to our stream, uh, had a little rough go because our stream didn't work. I guess our internet was down. So that's how we started out this whole thing. Doesn't it just sound like a, a spiritual work uh, in and of itself? There always is obstruction at the beginning of things. But say, listen to this. It's always the most important things that are obstructed. You know, if the devil's going to spend any time trying to uh, focus on something. It's a compliment uh, to whatever he's taking his time to focus on. So we'll take it as a compliment. Uh, so I always uh, give a name to the things that uh, I do. And so on Monday, it was called The First Things. And uh, today, it's called Becoming a Doer, which is very, very important in Christianity. Because we can hear what these words say. On Monday, I was talking about the the significance and the importance of the Bible. And this book is so paramount and so significant because it's like a treasure map. The treasure is actually the most valuable thing. And the treasure in Christianity is Jesus Christ. But the treasure map, the Bible, is the way we find him. And so as a result, we value this book higher than any other book, higher than any other thing, because it's what leads us to Jesus. And so in the handling of this book, a lot of people oftentimes think that just memorizing the words or just knowing what it says is what matters. It's like, I really know a lot of scripture. However, we need to do the scripture. In other words, when it says to do something, You need to do it. And that's the key to Christianity. So as you begin to unpack Christianity, you recognize that it's a verb. It's something that you do. It's not something that you just know about and sit in a chair and hear a sermon about. It's something that you activate and you move forward in in your life. So on Monday, I talked about the BW versus the GP. Now, if you missed it, see, now some of you are thinking, oh, great, I missed it. I have no idea what he's talking about, so I'll give you a little background. The BW is what we call the biblical worldview, and the GP is the gospel power. You see, we need to learn how to handle this Bible, and in so doing, we need to know how to rightly divide it. Now, uh, there's different ways that we learn how to handle Scripture. It's like, okay, this goes over here, and then this goes over here. Like, for instance, there's dark and there's light. There's death and there's life, and we're learning how to divide out the truth of Scripture to recognize that God is revealing both sides. He is showing how darkness works, but in contrast, he's revealing the light. And so we also see that he's going to divide out flesh or firstborn, and then he's going to show the secondborn, and that's a key theme throughout Scripture. But One of the biggest ones is going to be what I'm going to call the biblical worldview versus the gospel power. In this book, it's going to say all that you must do to be right with God. It is going to say that you cannot sin. You must be perfectly righteous. It's going to say that you cannot do this, 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 or this. And yet, in and of our own human strength, we can't do it. It is impossible. The standard is beyond us. It's a God standard. There's only one 
that could do it, and it's God. And so that's where the gospel power comes in, because if all we have is the biblical worldview, well, you better live perfectly, well, we're lost. But that's why the gospel is called the good news. We've been given good news. Jesus came, and he lived it. He did it perfectly, and as a result, we have hope. And that's where we need to make that division. And the gospel offers us the power to live out this Christian life. And that's why it's so significant. Okay, so that's review. And so if you need to, you can go back to the first episode of this series, and it's called The First Things, and you'll see it in the podcast. And that will uh, give you the background on that. Also on Monday, I went through... Uh, a, a little story on fact, faith, and experience. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of fact, faith, and experience. But I talked about three different characters that were walking the ridgepole of a barn. And this, this barn is, when you think of walking a ridgepole, it's like, I could do that. But this is an impossible ridgepole to walk. It's, it's like a razor's edge. And uh, it was funny because uh, Abby, uh, my <coughs> ten, my nine, she's almost 10, uh, nine-year-old, uh, said that she thought I said fat, faith and experience, and she was picturing, then I likened fat to Jesus, which she was a little confused about. So it's fact, uh, fact, uh, faith and experience. And uh, these three characters are commissioned to all do the same thing, and that's to pull off the impossible. You need to walk out this impossible life. And the first character, fact, is who we know as Jesus Christ. But we would say the truth. We don't usually, usually use the word fact in Christianity, but fact and truth are very similar in the, in the sense that there is no lie in them. A fact is true, but it's just data, it's just information, whereas truth is a person. And that truth gets up on top of this ridgepole and walks out the impossible. He does it. And he's, he's Jesus, and he is the truth, but that truth is more than just a person. It is also what we see in this book because Jesus makes this come to life. He is the Word of God made flesh. There's another character in the story called Faith. And as long as Faith fixes its gaze on fact, it too is able to gain balance. And that's where we come in. See, the way that we are able to pull off the impossible life is that we fix our gaze on Jesus Christ. And when we believe his word, when we stick his truth in front of us and we follow it, no matter what it asks us to do, we actually find that we gain balance in our soul. And life would be easy if that was all there is, but there is a third character named experience. You could say emotion. It's just a lot of noise back here. A lot of things that cause us to turn from this truth in our life. Okay, so you could think through your life of all the reasons why. Why don't you just follow the truth? You know what God says, so why don't you do it? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and they're all back here. You see, it's interesting because when you say experience, does God care that our experience in life matches with the truth, matches with the facts? He does. But the secret to getting your life, your experience, your emotion, all of that to line up with the facts is you can't let it lead your life. So Christianity 101, if we're gonna get down to the brass tacks, the basics of how Christianity functions, we must learn to follow God's word instead of our feelings, and our past experiences. I don't care what you've heard. I don't care what you've experienced. I don't care what you feel. All that matters is what God says. And if you learn to follow God's word, you will find that you will actually gain balance and be able to live 
an impossible life. Boy, that's exciting. Okay, I said this on Monday, but this is a lot of review stuff, but I'm going to review this one maybe every week, and that is the construction of Christianity, the formation of God within a man or a woman that believes is all based on what we could call the centrality of Jesus, which means right in the very center of the very center of who you are needs to be the person of Jesus Christ. The very center of the very center of all your thoughts, the very center of the very center of all your movements on this earth, it changes from being around you to being around him. You see, what is wrong with humanity is that we are centered around us. You ever heard the term self-centered? Mm-hmm. That's sin. That's the essence of sin. That's what keeps us away from God. So what Jesus saves us from is from us being centered around us so that we can be properly centered around him. And when we allow Jesus to move into the center of center positions in our life, in all our decisions, like when someone says, what are you going to do when you grow up? Well, you reason from Jesus. It's like, well, I guess it depends on what Jesus wants me to do when I grow up. It's a completely different logic as opposed to what do I feel like doing when I grow up? What do I want to do today? Now it's what does he want me to do today? Christianity centers around Jesus. And when you learn to study this Bible, you recognize that the Holy Spirit, who inspired and helped carry along the writers of this book to write down the words, He's also centered around Jesus Christ. And so every single thing you study in this Bible, it's amazing, but it reveals Jesus. So here, this goes to my title for the day, okay? Remember I said doers, uh, uh, I forgot actually what my title was, doing, no, no, be doers. I don't remember what it was, but uh, just look at the title. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So in other words, if you hear the truth, but don't do it, you actually are deceiving yourself. And this happens to so many Christians, where we stock our, our minds full of truth, but we don't do it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he, looks, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So the beginnings of Christianity, if we're going to get this right, we learn from the very beginning that it is God who enables us to do it, that it is all about Jesus, and that whenever the Holy Spirit instructs us in something and teaches us something, our job is is to immediately do it. And if we begin to do it and take those first steps forward every time we learn something, we will be blessed in what we do. Well, boy, I just gave away a whole bunch right there. Big secret of making Christianity functional. All right, our key terms for the day, and some of you are gonna be a little overwhelmed when you see a list like that. It's like, wow, you should see how many terms we need to go through just for the glossary of the gospel. I mean, on, on Monday... I remember we'd already had a really good message, and then suddenly I get to the terms, like, wow, we have a lot of terms to go through today. So I'm going to go through these quick, but what I want to do is I'm not going in-depth, in-depth studies into any of these, otherwise we'd be here, well, for weeks. In other words, each one of these could be a teaching series in and of themselves, but for the sake of uh, introductory understanding so that we as the body of Christ are on the same page with what the scriptures say and how they communicate to us, 
this is when you're being discipled, the key terminology that you need to be able to recognize what the Bible is saying. Okay, so the cross. What a huge term that is. Now when I say the cross, very likely you know what I mean. It's, it's those two pieces of wood on the, uh, the hill of Golgotha uh, outside uh, the city of Jerusalem uh, that Jesus died on, right? But the cross as used in, in the Bible, when it is discussed in the Bible, is it's not just a historic event, it is a statement of God's accomplishment. He did something at the cross. And so the cross is, uh, it's interesting because it's a tree in scripture. So you have, all throughout scripture, anytime a tree is mentioned, it's, trees are a symbol of something. They're a symbol of decision and justice. So you think about the very first tree. Do you remember where Eve and the serpent had their little conversation at the very beginning? There's a tree. And at that tree, she makes a decision. And at that tree, judgment comes, or there's justice that is brought. Okay? And there's, that's the same with you have trees all throughout Scripture. It's really odd that trees are such a key theme in Scripture. But now we have another tree, and it's called the cross or Calvary. And so at this tree, there, it's, again, a place of judgment, a place of justice, and that's why it's so important is because Jesus is in our place. Anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, it says in the Bible. And so Jesus literally chooses to hang on a tree for us. And he is cursed for us. We're the ones that should be cursed. Instead, he bears the curse for us. He takes the very penalty that we are supposed to carry. The very wrath of God falls on him instead of on us. So when he goes to that tree, he is standing in our place. He is taking the righteous judgment of God upon him because God is just. God wants to save you, but he still needs to have a penalty for sin. So Jesus takes that penalty for us. And so as a result, this cross becomes very, very important for us. Remember how I said it's also a place of decision? It is. Every single one of us, our eternity is defined by how we relate to that cross and how we decide at that cross. Just like our eternity was defined by how Eve and Adam handled that tree back then, and as long as uh, that's all there is, and if Jesus doesn't come, that, our decision is made. We are all separated from God for eternity, but now there's another place of decision, another tree. And if we come to that tree and believe in Jesus Christ and say, he took my sin upon him, I believe in Jesus Christ, then we are saved. The resurrection. The resurrection is no small thing. And it's, you know that people have argued about the resurrection since the beginning. Jesus promised that after three days, he, after being killed, he would rise again on the third day. And the, the teachers of the law in, in Israel that didn't like Jesus weren't too excited about this. And so they got the Romans all stirred up about it. So they put extra guard. They, I mean, not every grave. You, when you go down to the cemetery, do you see guards standing around graves? No, that's a fairly unusual thing because they were concerned, because they didn't believe Jesus, they were concerned that, that his disciples were going to steal his body and act like he rose from the dead. So they stick a guard out in front. Well, guess what? He did rise from the dead. The guard was so afraid, they ran away. The stone, which was too heavy for any normal man to just roll away, is literally busted open. And God rises from the dead. Jesus Christ rises from the dead on the third day, just as he said. And that's critical. Because if he doesn't rise, he's not the son of God. 
And so it's a very significant moment in history, the fact that he is proving, demonstrating to all the spiritual powers, high and low, all the earth, that this is, in fact, the Son of God. Now, I'm going to skip forward. I'll come back to this. But concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That resurrection is a very, very significant statement to all of our souls. Jesus is not in the grave. The one that we serve, our Lord and our Savior, our King and our, our uh, Rescuer, is in fact risen. He's alive this very day. The, the God we serve is alive. He is all-powerful and almighty, and he has defeated death. That's huge in the Christian life, so that will become more and more important as we unpack what Christianity is. Now, look at these next two, the old and the new. Now, if you're familiar at all with how the Bible's laid out, there's an old and a new. It's called the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another way of saying it is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And it's divided, not necessarily equally, right down the middle, like 50-50, but uh, it's 66 books, and there's 39 of those books that are in the Old Testament, and there's uh, 27 in the New. And, but these terms, old and new, are used all over the place in Scripture. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, uses those terms a lot. And he says that we have an old man, and we need to put it off so that we can clothe ourselves in a new man. It's like, old man? Uh, Reese is over here and he's seven years old, and yet he has an old man? It means the first. It means the one that was, okay? So it doesn't necessarily mean aged, like gray hair and a cane. It means the first. So whenever old is mentioned, it can mean old and aged. However, it just means the first. And we need to put off that old man. Have you ever heard the, the term? I remember watching Leave it to Beaver uh, growing up. And not my kids actually like Leave it to Beaver. But there's a character named Eddie Haskell. And when he refers to his dad, he always calls him his old man. And so a father is oftentimes looked at as an old man. And which, of course, if you're a father like I am, that's not necessarily a term that I would uh, encourage my kids to use uh, to describe me. But what's interesting is that's actually true because our old man was Adam. And we are a descendant of Adam, just as my kids are a descendant of me, if you want to say it that way, that we are a descendant of Adam. And our old man is Adam. And as long as we are in Adam, we are dead. So our first condition... Our first house in which we live is actually under condemnation, is under a just penalty of law. And unless we get out of it, unless we put it off, we will be judged forever and always separated from God. Which is why Paul says, hey, put that old off and put on the new. You see, Jesus Christ is another house, another set of clothes, if you will. And the door is open. And he says, Leave this house, which is going to burn, and enter into this house, which will last forever. And that's the new house, or the new life in Christ. The new creature is what it's called. There's all sorts of terms for it, but we have old and new. So the new is that which is second. It's that which God is bringing about, okay? So this old and new is going to be very, very important in the terrain of understanding Christianity, Grace. So grace is one of the most oft misunderstood words in our modern version of Christianity. 
And as it says in Jude that there are evil people that will creep into the church of Jesus Christ and twist the idea of grace. And they will turn it into something known as a license to sin. When I was growing up, there was a character named James Bond, and he had a license to kill. He's like, Bond, James Bond. And he had this license to kill. He was some uh, British secret agent, and he could go out and kill and, I guess, get away with it, right? Well, that's the way a lot of Christians think grace is. It's like, oh, I have a license to sin. It's like, Christian, license to sin. Uh, No, no, that is what evil men who creep into the church try and twist it into. Grace is far different than that. Grace is God's working in a simple way. There's a lot of different ways I could describe it for you, but God needs to work on our behalf, otherwise we're lost. And if he doesn't come 2,000 years ago, if if the life of Jesus is not lived on our behalf, if he doesn't die on our behalf, we cannot be saved. But we are saved by grace. We are saved by God giving us something that we do not deserve. We couldn't pay for it. We couldn't earn it. So it's unmerited. We could never save up enough money to pay off God to come down to this earth and pull that off for us. It was something he did because of how he loved us and his mercy that he showed towards us. But that's the work of grace. It is an action on our behalf, a giving of God, a working of God on our behalf to save us. So how are we saved? We're saved by God working on our behalf. We're saved by grace, right? It's undeserved, it's unmerited. It's the kindness of God expressed. All of those things are true, but it is a working, it is a doing of God. Now, God worked 2,000 years ago, but how are you saved today? Like say a temptation comes and the devil goes, hmm, <laughs> I want you to do this. Have you ever noticed that it's really hard to say no to that? You see, in our old man, in Adam, we are very weak and fragile and impressionable. And the devil gets away with all sorts of nonsense in our life, which is why Paul teaches us to put off the old man and to find our life in Christ. Because in Christ, now we have Christ's strength to say no to temptation. But what is that strength? The Bible will call it grace. In other words, in Christ, we now have grace to live in, this, in, in Christ, to, to function in this world so that we can now repel and say no to the devil. You see, that is, again, just as Christ showed grace to us 2,000 years ago, he gives grace to us now to live this life. So how are we saved? We're saved by grace. But how are we saved from temptation today? Or how about that that desire we have to punch someone in the nose when they're mean to us. How are we saved? We are saved by grace, the working of God. God will say, hey, I'll help you right there. I'll help restrain you. I'll help you show love instead of uh, hate. In other words, we have grace. This is the function of a Christian. A Christian is able to work, to do what they do because of the grace of God. So as I always like to say, it's the strength of God to carry out the impossible errands of God on this earth. You want to be able to do what God has called you to do? What do you need? Uh, You need grace. You need God doing it for you. So there's a key line in scripture which gives the secret to how salvation works. And it says that we are saved by grace through faith. So as a result, both those two words become very, very important in Christianity. Grace is God working for us, okay, as I just described. But faith is us allowing him to work for us. 
We are saved by grace through faith. So faith, I remember uh, A.W. Tozier once saying, it's the gaze of the soul upon Christ. It is the confidence. See, you could, you could look over here to your ability in Adam and say, okay, I have, I have the ability to do this, 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 and this. Or you could look at God's ability over here and says, but he has the ability to do this, 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 and this. Which one are you going to look upon? Which one are you going to have confidence in? Are you going to look to yourself? Are you going to look to your bank account? Are you going to look to your medicine cabinet? What are you going to look to as your savior? And so what faith is, it's a turning. It is a gazing. It is a trust to say, I trust that God is able to do this for me. There was a missionary to the Modalone Indians uh, named uh, Bruce Olson. He was known as Bruchko. There's a great uh, biography about uh, Bruchko, autobiography. And uh, he was trying to describe faith to the Modalone Indians, which is a hard thing because they didn't have the word in their language. So how do you describe something to a people that have never had the concept and do not have even the word in their, in their language? So they used to all sleep in a common house, which is really strange. Uh, so it's just like one big house, and they had these rafters up there, and every one of the tribespeople would sleep in a hammock hanging from the rafters of this common house. And so here, here was how he described faith. He says, you know how you tie your hammock strings into those rafters, and you put your weight down upon that hammock, and you trust it to hold you up? He says, I want you to do the same to Jesus. I want you to take your hammock strings and untie them from any other thing you trust in. I want you to tie them into Jesus Christ and then put your entire weight upon it. That is faith. So how are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by God working in us saying, I trust you to work for me. And laying down in the hammock, tying everything we are to Jesus. If you tie your life to Jesus and put your weight on it, that means you're trusting him with the entire weight of your life. Holiness. <clears throat> Big word. Holiness, just to make it as simple as I can, means other than us. It's other than. That's what it means. So God is not like us. So he's holy, holy, holy. He's not like us. He's not like us. He's really not like us. So the word holiness wouldn't even exist if there wasn't sin in this world. But since sin is in this world, God has to create a word to clarify that he is not like that. You see, he's light. He's very different than darkness. You see, he's life. He's very different than death. He's holy. He's other than death. He's other than, uh, than darkness. He's other than lies. You see, he is holy. We have fallen into sin. So we are unholy, we are unlike God. So one of the amazing things about the truth of Jesus Christ is we are commanded in scripture to be holy as he is holy. And yet no matter how hard we try, we can't whip it up. Remember Adam, our old man? We can't get holiness out of this life. We can't be like God in this old man. So if we put it off and we put on Christ, you know what we're putting on? We're putting on a life that is holy. And you know what happens when we put on Christ? The Holy Spirit now can move in. And did you get, catch the name of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit. So what is he going to bring? Not only are we clothed in the holy life of Jesus, but now the Holy Spirit comes inside of us to do what? To make us holy. 
So in and of yourself, you cannot be holy. You cannot be like God. You are other than God. But God desires to make you like him. That's actually one of the great things that happens in Christianity. You see, even though we are not like God, when we believe in Jesus, he clothes us in God's nature, in God's person, in God's work. And then inside, we are still not like God, but he begins to change us. He changes the way we think, the way we feel, the way we live, the way we do things. And at, over time, we are being sanctified is the word. I haven't gotten to that word yet in our glossary, but it means to be made holy. We are being made like God. Love. So there's a word in the Greek called philatia, and it means self-love. See, all of us start this way. Oh, I love, I love marshmallows, Doritos, I love sleep, I love weekends. In other words, we love things, we have affection for things, we have deep care about things, but it's selfish love. It's how it pertains to me and what it gives to me. I'll love it as long as it makes me feel really good. Okay, that is not what we're talking about here. So when we use the term love in scripture, we move into a whole different territory, a God version of love that is very different than that. In other words, don't confuse Adam with Jesus. Don't confuse Satan with Jesus. Jesus is completely other than, and so is his love. You see, man's love is self-centered, but God's love is others-centered. That means he considers others' needs above his own. Isn't that amazing that God Almighty would consider others above himself? That's a weird thought. And yet, when we come to Christ, we leave our self-love behind, and we pick up God's love, which in the scriptures is called agape love. And it is a love that considers others' needs, that is willing to sacrifice and even lay down its life, remember on the cross, to give life to others. That's actually what he wants to build in us. And as scripture says, it is this love that will mark us as a disciple of Jesus. How will the world know that we are actually being discipled and trained by Jesus Christ? It's that we will have this kind of agape love for one another. And so there's no better place to start than in your homes, with your parents, your brothers and sisters, and the body of Christ around you. Because this is where we show it. The world should be able to peek in and go, huh, they really are Christians. They have that selfless, sacrificial, giving love one to the other. Righteousness. These are big words, aren't they? Righteousness can sort of be an intimidating word, but let me see if I can make it as simple as possible. Righteousness is as God is. That's what it is. It's the behavior of God. It's, it's, the, it's the way God behaves. He is righteous. Now get this. Righteousness is as God is and as we ought to be. In other words, when he created us, remember in the very beginning God created man and he shaped him out of the dust. What was he creating him to be? Righteous. He was creating him to be as God intended him to be. This is as God intended a man to be. So when Jesus came to this earth, you know what he did? He lived the way we didn't and can't. He lived as a righteous man. He lived the way a man was created by God to live, without sin, perfectly. Okay, now God intends us to be righteous. The problem is 
We're not. And we can't even go and be with him in heaven unless we are righteous. We have problems. Which is why it's so incredible what Jesus did because when Jesus came to this earth, he lived as a man ought to live, as God intended a man to live. He lived perfectly righteous. God has given a law, and guess what? Jesus, when measured up against the law, passes. Check, 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 check. He passes the test. He is just before the law. He is righteous. And he gives us this clothing, this righteousness, and he opens the door to it, and he says, when you believe in me, you step into my righteousness. You are clothed in my robe of righteousness, and as a result, as Christians, we are allowed into God's very presence. How? In Jesus. You see, our secret avenue of entry is called the way. Jesus says, I am the way. He also says, I'm the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but by him. He is the way to the Father. So how do you get to the Father? You must put off the old and put on the new by faith. You see, Jesus worked for us. He gave his life for us. That's grace. And when we believe in it, we are clothed in his righteousness. And as a result, we are brought into the holiness of God to share in his holy life. Even though we are so other than that, he has made a way to bring us near. Boy, guys, this is about as exciting as it gets. I don't know if you're feeling like standing up and cheering, but this is good stuff. Baptism and communion is how we'll finish up today. And the reason I'm putting those together, in the church, you'll notice you've heard of things like baptism. Oh, that person got baptized on Sunday. And then, oh, and we're taking communion this Sunday. Ironically, I think this past Sunday we had communion and had a baptism. So that really fits for any of us here. But... What's amazing about that is Paul uses a certain term to describe Christianity. And what, uh, what Nathan uh, is going through on Tuesdays, he's going through the book of Ephesians, and it's, what'd you call it, the, what was the key term? The position, an epistle of position. The whole book is about our position in Christ. But not just that, it's what that position affords in other words, what, when you leave Adam, you are in Adam, and you put off Adam. Well, now you're no longer in Adam when you put off Adam. It's like being in, in clothes and then putting off those clothes. Well, no, you're no longer in those clothes. But when you put on new clothes, now you're in those clothes. So your position is in the new clothes. When you enter new clothes, when you enter by faith Jesus Christ, Paul calls it being in Christ. And so that's what baptism is. Baptism, the word in the Greek is baptizo, which means to be immersed in something. So the, the picture in the Greek is a cucumber being immersed in vinegar. And did you know what happens if you keep a, a cucumber in vinegar for 40 days? It becomes a pickle. It becomes a new food. And this is precisely the mental picture that we are given for what is happening when we put off Adam and we put on Christ by faith. We actually become new. We are made new by what? By baptism. But baptism is, you know, many of us understand it's like in water and you, know, you go back down and many of you are like, oh, that looks cold. You know, I'm going to come back up. And, and uh, so we see, the, we, we see the water version of baptism, but what we fail to see is all that is is an external symbol of what takes place in the heart. You see, we are baptized by faith. 
When we believe in Jesus and we put off the old man and we are immersed in Jesus Christ by faith, we're baptized into Christ Jesus. Now as a public statement of what just took place, we say, I'd like to be baptized in water so that we could confess our faith, so that we could stand before people and say, hey, look what happened. I entered into Christ, and when I entered into Christ, I entered into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I am now in Christ Jesus. It's a very, very important thing, and if any of you haven't been baptized in water, but you have been baptized by faith in Christ Jesus, I highly encourage you to be baptized in water. As a public statement, it's sort of like taking wet clay and sticking it in a kiln. What happens? It firms up. And that's precisely what happens. You have wet clay, you've made a decision for Jesus Christ, but now you stick it in the fires of public declaration and out comes something firm. So I'm gonna look at baptism as being in Christ. But when you enter into Christ, you put off the old man and you believe in Jesus and you put on the new man. You're now in Christ. And now you're in his righteousness. You'll be able to be brought into his holy, holy, holiness. This is incredible. Just because of faith in Christ, it's because he did the work for you. But the communion is what symbolizes now what we can participate in. See, if you look at the word communion, you'll see two things. Common union. As believers in Christ, Nathan, what's your position? What's your position, Sarah? So we have a whole bunch of people in Christ. Uh, Kip, what's your position? You're in Jesus too? You see, we're in, we have a common union. We're all sort of hanging out there together. It's like we all are, are stepping out of the old man and stepping in. It's like, whoa, boy, I just stepped on Kip's foot in here. Boom, what's Nathan doing in here? We have a common union. We're all in Christ together. And we all share in the same inheritance. You know what that is? The life of God. You have access to the life of God. And so this is why Jesus gets so excited, guys. He's like, you know, it's better for you that I go to be with the Father because when I do, you're gonna get the life of God. You're gonna get the Holy Spirit. We have in this common union, not just the ability to declare, I am in Christ, but we have now the ability to say, and Christ is in me. We have access to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit now has access to us. So when we are in Christ, we can ask the Father for the Holy Spirit and he enters in. Now, now look at what communion is. What do you do with communion? You have bread, you have some juice, and you take it in through this uh, mouth cavity and it enters into your body. It's a symbol of something entering in. The life of Christ, the working of Christ, the grace of Christ coming in and finding a house inside of you. That's why it's so profound. So baptism is you entering into Christ, entering into his work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his seated position. But then, communion is saying, and I now share in the common union that we all have the inheritance of the saints, I have access to the Holy Spirit, and this body receives gladly the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't that an amazing statement? What a beautiful picture. Now there's a lot of depth to each of these. Every single thing I just went through, I just skimmed on the surface like a rock skipping on the surface. At the same time, it's a, it's a beginning understanding of the grandeur of what is taking place when we enter the kingdom of heaven. 
the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe that's obvious with what I just said. However, as we progress as Christians, now remember what I'm doing is I'm giving almost like a primer, a basic introduction to first steps forward in the kingdom of heaven. And this is for those of you that are new believers and it's also for those of us that are going to be discipling new believers. In other words, we want to introduce people to the grandeur of Jesus Christ. We don't want them to be stunted. We want them to grow up in grace. And so, these are all very important things. Well, what am I gonna say to someone who's a new believer? You cannot do this in your own strength. I I know you mean well, and I know you're probably a very disciplined person, but you need something more than what you have. You must have the Holy Spirit. So if you are in Jesus, seek more Crave more of the Holy Spirit. Let this body be ruled by something other than you and your own ability. So on Monday, I introduced the idea of a key exercise of the week. And I I just discussed, I, I called it devotional practice. Which means that there's a part of our life that needs to recognize that we need to exercise what God has given us. He's dishing out food, and what do we need to do? We need to eat it. We need to be doers of the word. So we are not saved by the fact that we study the Bible, by the fact that we go out and share Jesus with people uh, in this world that are lost. Those are all very, very significant exercises of soul, though, that actually strengthen us. Sort of like that kiln I talked about, that hot fire where you stick the wet clay in and it heats it up. That's like this, the disciplines of doing When you do the doing aspects of of, of the word of God, when he says, hey, guys, I need you to be praying. I'm like, okay. See, this is an expression of love. You see, when we pray, we draw closer to him. When we go and share the gospel, it's an amazing thing, but when we're sharing the gospel with us, do you know that we get closer to Jesus? I mean, it is such an intimate thrill when you are sharing Jesus with someone else because the Holy Spirit is working through you. So the closeness you feel with Jesus in the process. So all the, what we call exercises, are that which kindle intimacy. God desires intimacy with us. And so we say back to him, what do I need to do to have greater intimacy? So I said on Monday, if I wanted to have greater intimacy with my wife, I don't just get married and say, I have a marriage certificate, I'm done. But God could say, uh, you may want to talk with her. Maybe spend some time every day. And some of you are like, yeah, that would be obvious. Yeah, and it also should be obvious to us in our relationship with Christ. To grow this up and to strengthen it, there are things that we should be doing that would cultivate that, fan that flame. Okay, so our key exercise of the week is prayer. Prayer is a big topic in Scripture, so it's very difficult for me to give my little skimmy rock over the surface. But long and short... It is a communication with God, it's a fellowship with God. And yes, it usually uses words spoken, but it can be silent. You can pray inside, and part of it's just abiding. It's just sharing life. Like Leslie and I used to write books together, we all had this one room where she'd be writing on one side, I'd be writing on the other, and I was always alert and attentive. If she needed something, I was there, my ear was open to her, but she could be working on something, I could be working on the other side, and you can call that a form of prayer, like abiding. Prayer is also an active engagement. It's a form of labor. And so imagine that I have a big long rope here and it has a grappling hook, like a little claw on the end. I throw it up into the heavenlies to grab one of the promises of God. One of the things that he has said, Eric, I desire to get that promise down to this earth. So what prayer is, is grabbing a hold of that and pulling, 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 pulling until that promise gets to this earth. 
It also could be like God saying that there's a treasure underneath my feet. And then he hands me a shovel. What should I do? I guess you dig, guys. And that's prayer. What if I don't get it after three scoopfuls? Should I give up? No, because God promised. So therefore, I dig and 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 I dig until I get that treasure. And that's prayer. Prayer is a labor to see God's purposes accomplished in this earth. And so, as a basic step forward in your Christian faith, you're going to want to begin to have that conversation with God, have that communication with God, and learn how to hold that rope and pull, learn how to take that shovel and dig. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.